Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, your co-host, and I just have to say, the interview with today's guest put me on my heels. I'm talking about a self-aware Enneagram 3 who is doing the work and does not shrink back from facing her shadow side. Talking about Maddie Jackson Selectman. She's an author, podcaster, speaker. She has a philanthropic apparel brand that serves orphans, widows, and victims of human trafficking. Maddie tragically lost her 28-year-old husband three weeks shy of their first wedding anniversary. And so we talk about the work that she did to grieve and to heal. She's got a brand new book, Lemons on Friday, Trusting God Through My Greatest Heartbreak. Wow, couldn't be more honored to have Maddie on the show today. It's a rich interview, and I believe it's going to be really meaningful to you. Hey, so happy that you're here. We love our listeners. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now, here is the host of our show, Ian Crumb. Maddie Jackson, Enneagram 3 with a two-wing author of the new book, Lemons on Friday, Trusting God Through My Greatest Heartbreak. Welcome to Typology. Hey, thanks for having me. This is it's kind of a bucket list thing. Like I'm kind of nerding out because I, like any good three, got into the Enneagram and deep dove into it. And, you know, your book, The Road Back to You, was my first step into that and have kind of just been on this exploration, not just of myself, but just the whole system and tool that it is in the last few years and and it's just cool like it's cool to be here with you you know it is interesting isn't it that when we learn something like the enneagram uh it's like putting on a new pair of glasses and suddenly you're looking through the lens of the enneagram at the person who is serving you coffee at Frothy Monkey <laughs> yeah. and your mom and your dad and your yeah. brothers and your and your dog. Yeah, yeah. And, and everybody is getting typed. And then you kind of mature and grow out of that into sort of the period of deep personal reflection. And you've been in a season of uh, incredible self-reflection in the wake of the death of your husband at a tragically young age. Tell folks about that, and then we'll dive into three with two. Yeah. Um, so I met my late husband, Ben, um, in our mid-20s, and we had a very fast and fun and passionate sort of romance and relationship, which is not surprising for a forward-thinking three and an enthusiast seven, which is, I'm certain, what he was. We, we weren't uh, aware of the Enneagram at that point, but... Um, and it was, it was beautiful and it was fun. And, you know, we dated for about a year and were engaged for a year. And then about three weeks before our first wedding anniversary, um, lost him very suddenly to just sort of a freak brain trauma. And, um, that was three and a half years ago. So it's been obviously a very difficult (laughs) to say the least past several years for me, but where, the Enneagram came into it was after losing him. Well, that's not entirely true. One of my very best friends is a therapist and she had told me when we got married, Hey, this is a really cool tool. Like, I know you love tests. Like you, you'll be excited to see what you are. Do this. And I was like, okay, okay, whatever. So I took it kind of flippantly scored as a three, wasn't shocked and like, didn't really give it any further thought. Um, but then after Ben died, I don't, something came back up and brought it to my mind and I thought, okay, maybe this is something that can help me right now. And so that's when I really, I retook another test, read the road back to you. 
and again, always score way higher than anything on a three. And um, it became a really powerful tool for me in trying to just understand my grief and what my sort of default responses were. And like you said, kind of put on a little bit of a, a new pair of glasses to see why I was reacting to things the way I was reacting. Um, and, and just kind of went from there. And like I said, as any three, I deep dove into it and wanted to know everything about it and be great at it and forced it on all my friends and family. So. <laughs> <laughs> and that was three years ago. So. And, you know, and even the dog and cat are, yes, ti- exactly. are, yeah. are tired of hearing about, yes. the, about the Enneagram. <laughs> well, you know, I find this really exciting because I know we have never had a person on the show who has spoken about uh, processing grief through the lens of the Enneagram. And I think people oftentimes assign grief to catastrophic situations, right? You you had a catastrophic trauma, um, you know, losing a husband at a very young age, very suddenly from an accident. So it's not like you had ramp up. I mean, you guys left in the morning, gonna have a great day on the boat. And then by 24, well, no, two weeks later, but he was in induced coma for a long period of that. Mm -hmm. You thought it was going to get better. It didn't. It went sideways super quick and he died. That's a catastrophic trauma. But life is filled with grief producing situations of different magnitudes, right? Your dog dies, a miscarriage, or it, it may be having to move and leave behind many dear friends and there's fear and grief all in, all to say, it sounds to me like the book would be helpful for people who are experiencing grief at every level. Yes, I certainly hope so. That was a huge part of um, my conversation with my editors and um, just the entire uh, promotion you know, period that I've been in for the past six months that we talked about is my fear was this book, which is really just a behind the scenes look at my grief and my healing and by especially the role that my faith played in that. Um, It, it, my fear was that it would get pigeonholed into a book about death and it is a book about death because that's my story, but it's really a book about hope and a book about healing um, and a book about love, like learning to let go of love, having the courage to love again, and really God's love for us and like love and grace for yourself in any season of grief of any magnitude. And so I'm, I'm grateful to hear you say that. And, and I hope that there is comfort for anybody who's lost anything or, you know, is in a season of waiting for something that they want that they mm. haven't had yet. That's good. How does a three let cope or process grief in a way that you think might be different than other types like what's your experience of your threeness moving through the passageway of of grief so i will say what is cool to me about the enneagram is as you know i think your best qualities are your worst qualities right they're all tied together and so this sort of compulsion to perform that i have in whatever i'm doing um, was one of my greatest, um, assets in my grief. And it was also one of the things that I had to be the most careful to keep in check because with my tendency to try to be the best at everything that I do, I mean, I went into 
my therapy sessions wanting to be the best at this. And I wanted to be, I was like, I hate this, but if I have to be the 28 year old widow, like I'm gonna be the best one because that's just my tendency. And it, it really wasn't even like as narcissistic as it sounds. I genuinely wanted people to see the catastrophe of my story and see the power that faith can have to help you endure that. And it really, I think the intention was genuine, but, but it can get carried in to that major like self promoting mindset. And so that all of that on top of the fact that my dad is a country superstar and our story is public, you know, I had to be very careful to not um, try to perform my way through it personally. But I will say the positive for me was because it was public and because it was sort of um, out there for the world to watch me do in real time, I could immediately see the positive impact that I could have on people through my story. And so the fact that my pain immediately had purpose helped me um, accept it. But, you know, behind closed doors, I had to be sure to get off the stage and be real with myself and... It didn't look as good as it just sounded. I will say that. <laughs> okay, I just I'm yeah. laughing because you, unlike, okay, how am I going to say this without insulting other threes? I'm the best three you've ever met. No, you can say it. no, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. What I am going to say is that I have met many threes who have uh, a story to tell. They've lost a business. They've gone broke. They've done this. They've gone through some difficult season. Then they write a book about mm -hmm. it. And the reason they write the book is, this is terrible. This is if you're not a very self-aware three, is they see an opportunity to spin the loss into a success. I, I get that. Yeah. I, I genuinely have actively prayed against that desire. You are the first three or one of the very few threes I know who can honestly say I had to be careful that I wasn't taking a tragedy and turning it into a cool movie and book. Right. I'm going to spin it in a different yeah. way so that I look awesome. Yeah. Like I'm the best grieving widow right. and I've, I've come across the mountain. Right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. sometimes I'm in a three and it's like they went to jail for something. <laughs> yeah. Right. For fraud. And then they write a book and make a million dollars on what I learned from being a fraud. Yes. And it's like, you didn't learn anything, <laughs> right? That's so funny. If you'd learned something, yeah. you wouldn't have written that book. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I think a lot of I think a lot of my um, intention to not do that with this book is a little less probably personal maturity and a little more respect for his family. Mm -hmm. um, that has genuinely been a fear of mine. Is this is. I have always wanted to be a writer, and I, I don't like that this is my first story to tell, um, but I hope that it does sort of become a catalyst for this career that I've always wanted and didn't know what I was going to talk about or how to do it. And I never want that to be at the expense of their grief, and we're still very close, and they could not be more supportive of me. But I do think some of my um, intention is is less valiant than it seems. I think it's more out of respect for them. But um, no, I was very aware that <laughs> this I could get very carried away um, with something, and it was important to me to try to not lose sight of that. And I have people, like we all do, in my life that will remind me when I do get outside the lines of what this is really about. Well, I'm impressed. Same. I'm impressed, man, because I don't often 
I mean, I can't think of the last time a three was able to look at themselves with that much objectivity and say, okay, I know that my tendency is to do X. That is not the best expression of who I am. And I have to put in safeguards and to be very careful that my intentions remain as pure as possible because they're never complete. You know, you can't rinse them enough that, you know. And then, in fact, when it comes to that, I'm always in the business of saying, what are the ratios here? Like, is, is it... As long as the ratio is favoring the right intention. Yeah, Yeah. I love that. I like that. You know, it's Uh like, that's the best I can do. Yeah, that's all. I'm 80% pure, right? Right. Don't get me wrong. I still hope it turns into a New York Times bestseller. Like, you can't get rid of that. That's still what I want. Nothing wrong with that. But, yes, I I appreciate you saying that. Because it was a a battle that I tried to stay aware of. How did the, how did you becoming, or finding out that you were a three, um, help did you did you while you're going through the grief process and this everything you just described was there a moment when you went oh my gosh like i am wired to i'm hardwired to do this and like that scares me to death was there a moment in time when you i don't think there was a specific moment um well i take that back besides i had never really never experienced anything traumatic um and so my first entry into any sort of therapy or counseling was after he died. And so that's a very intense way to start counseling. You know, it's not like I'm unhappy in my job. I need you to help me work through this. It was trauma. And, but I, that was what I went into it. And I literally said, like, I, I want a list. Like, I need you to tell me what to do. I don't care how hard it is. I'll do everything I have to do if I can just get through this quickly and like get done with it. And obviously that is not how grief works. That is not how therapy works. That is not how life works. But that was sort of a moment where I realized like my capabilities, my like compulsion for efficiency, my need to have a plan, like none of that was going to happen with grief and it wasn't going to be helpful. And, and so I think that was a moment where it, it was crystal clear the way that I'm wired and what I wanted was not the way that grieving and healing was going to work. And then I will say something that was interesting um, and helpful to me was learning sort of the disintegration and integration, I think, are some of the terms, because I saw myself so much go to, in public, go to the the kind of low side of Perform E3, which did help me because you kind of compartmentalize your emotions and don't fall apart. But when I was alone, it was like all that would catch up and I would go so hard into the nine and then just shut down for Mm -hmm. X amount of days. And so it was helpful to me to see those swings and try to get as much as I could in the middle of those two sort of um, tendencies. But it kind of taught me how to live in the better side of nine because I'm obviously not a good rester as a three and that is so crucial in, in difficult seasons. And you're really bringing up a really good point that's uh, educational in nature for people. You know, when you go from your core type to your point of disintegration, your point of, you know, where you go when you're not in security, people tend to think that, okay, I got to rush out of my point of, in, my, my disintegration point. I got to get back to three or I got to, you know, I got to get to the high side of six by, you know, where I go when I'm really healthy. And I'm like, well, you know, there's another option, which is simply 
intentionally move to the high side of your your disintegration point. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, at that space, I can believe that God's in charge. Mm-hmm. You know, as Julian and Norwich said, all shall be well, yeah. all shall be yeah. well, all manner of things shall be well. And instead of turning into a depressive with a box of donuts watching, you know, Anna um, <laughs> on, on Netflix and then not getting up for two days, you can observe and say, okay, this is where I am. No shame. Yeah. It's just where I am right now. Mm-hmm. Now, what things can I do to move into a different space that uh, will be supportive in the best way for me? Because right down here, yeah. This is not supportive, no. right? This is narcotizing. Yes. This is yes. not health, right? Yeah. Uh, I love so. when you say that because there are so many options and people just think, oh, it's fate. You know, right. I'm sentenced to this low side of nine and there's nothing I can do about it. You know, when I'm into No, it, it became a very powerful tool for me um, and, and really did teach me the value of rest. And I think that um, even now in a, you know, now that I'm not in the throes of this grief and my life is very good again. I'm very grateful for where I am. It still has taught me, I still can see the trigger when I need that high side of nine and recognize it a little better. And as you said, not shame myself for it. There is a very, I didn't realize until, I don't, I don't think I ever recognized shame until I studied the Enneagram. And then you read it and it's like, oh, I'm not a, I don't, I don't have shame. And then you start paying attention and it's like, I literally shame myself if I don't do something productive for X amount of time. Like I don't read fiction books because I feel like I'm not gaining anything. Like, <laughs> I'm not kidding that I tried so hard. And last year I was like, I'm going to read one fiction book. Okay. I'm like 115 pages into it. And then started it a year ago. I just feel like it's a waste of time because I'm not gaining anything. And I'm a four and read fiction. Yes. I know we need to swap libraries. We do. We, do. we need you to go. We need you to balance your three, two with I a know. three, four. We need I to get know. that four wing going girl. I know you got to teach me some four. Well, I mean, one of the ways, and you know, I, I do coaching with a very, very small group. It's not like I, it's not what I do. Uh, I enjoy it, but it's just, I'll take on two people, you know? And what's interesting about it is uh, for someone like you, threes are great coaching clients. Uh, And the reason is, and just to make clear to people, if you're a therapist, you're trying to move people from dysfunction to function. You just want to get them back to functioning. Maybe more if you're lucky, but baseline, let's just get you back to functioning. In coaching, you're trying to get people who are functioning or high functioning to, you know, to high functioning. And so with a a three, for example, like that, I might say, all right, I want you to make a list of five fiction books that you're going to read. You're going to break them up into how many pages a day you're going to read. Right. And so you you leverage the gift of the three to get through something that isn't natural to them, you know. So that's another way the Enneagram can be used. It's like, well, how is a, I know I should read these books because actually you can learn a ton from fiction about human beings, but how do I do it in a way that works for me as a three? Yeah. I think that's a cool point to make in that the more you learn about yourself and your motivations, you know, you can, you can use those tricks against yourself, you know, like the efficiency thing is what I think blew my mind when I started to read about the three, because, you know, the achievement and the image conscious and the competitive, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. None of this surprises me. And then I started reading about that. And I thought back over, um, 
you know, a time when, especially I was very, uh, overdrawn. I ran a, I had a wine bar restaurant here for a couple of years. And I, I looked back over the time that I was planning that and working 16, 17 hours a day and going to all these different meetings. And I would schedule those days so perfectly that, I mean, I, I like hate if I get somewhere five minutes early because I'm like, what am I, I'm wasting five minutes. Like I could have planned this better. And that shocked me. And now I just, I can use that sometimes as a tool to, to make myself prioritize better. And I don't know, it just, that was, I don't know why this is even relevant to what we're talking about, but the efficiency thing blew my mind. No, it's very it's relevant. Like, it's like a hit of a drug or something. It's like right. you get a high when it's timed out perfectly. Every type gets a dopamine hit in many ways from its, uh, unconscious motivation when it's satisfied. So, you know, a one gets a hit when something gets done seemingly perfect and correct. A two might get that hit when the person they're with says, I don't know what I could do without you. I need you in my life. I I wouldn't make it without you. A three, as you mentioned, does this. A four get, you know, I could go through all the types. And the the hit isn't necessarily a bad thing unless you're addicted to the hit. Right? And of course, we know that the brain loves pleasure yes, yes. and it hates, you know, dis-ease. Yeah. So again, we have to learn how to cope in the dis-ease. And, um, you know, you can turn that efficiency addiction into uh, something positive by saying, okay, my goal today is to um, give myself one hour of no productivity just being with myself and not looking at the clock or go running without a watch you know do and again what you're all you're doing is in my new book i talk about a jerry contra which is this ancient spiritual idea which is do the opposite Mm -hmm. of what you normally would do uh in a way to temper it right so it doesn't own you in a in an unhealthy fashion now you mentioned it i wasn't going to mention it you are the daughter of alan jackson if you if anyone listening doesn't know who alan jackson is you probably live in new england um (laughs) but of course alan jackson uh, a legendary gigantic superstar in the world of country music and i wasn't going to mention it because this is about you and i don't often like it when people you know, say, oh, your identity is tethered to this other person. That's not how I want to approach it. You brought it up. (laughs) But it's tied to a question about threes. Did growing up in an entertainment business family where your dad is, was, you know, on tour in front of arenas, uh, stadiums, uh, on the CMAs, on Good Morning America, whatever, you know, everywhere. Did that Uh, success, that appearance of success, in any way do you think uh, create that three in you in some way? I mean, I think it it would have to have. I mean, I've I've thought a lot about that more that that I get into learning about the Enneagram and um, try to think back, you know, as a young kid and have asked my parents about it. And now that my mom knows more about the Enneagram, she affirms that I, she, she would not be surprised if I was always a three. I know it's kind of a combination of the nature and nurture, right? With what your type, what you become. But I think that while 
that was never the expectation they had for us. I think simply being brought up in that environment, you know, I wasn't expected to be great at everything or expected to look a certain way, but I was in a world that uh, modeled that. And so when I started to be successful, particularly in school, you know, and in sports, it was rewarded. And so I saw, I mean, I was born, like dad got his record deal like a month before I was born in 1990. So when I was in my formative years was the peak of his career when he was entertainer of the year and winning Grammys and, you know, has all the Ford truck sponsorships, you know, on TV. And, and so I think that what I witnessed is that this is what, this is what a happy, successful life is. And so in my own way, when I started to succeed, um, again, and mostly in school, but in sports and all that, you know, it, it just sort of reinforced that idea. It was never, what I hear from a lot of threes, which is you need to be perfect or you need to do better. It was just that I was really good at stuff and I got rewarded. And that was just yeah. the picture that I saw. And that was the life that I wanted. Every origin story is different. Yeah. Right. Uh, for some people, they might say, I just came out of the womb this way. Other people may say, ah, I don't know. My mom said I was kind of a relaxed little kid, but you know, as X, Y, and Z happened, you know, so you know, I became more and more of a three, et cetera. I would think growing up in, a, uh, in the home of someone who's a superstar in the entertainment world, where the adulation for their success is you're swimming in an ocean of it. And, and you're starting to do the math as a little kid. If I do something really spectacular like my dad, then... I will get all this admiration, which is a drug for threes. Yes. And, and so you might begin to model your life uh, on the same kind of, of a pursuit. And is it bad? No, not necessarily. It, it could be if it's just running on autopilot and you don't realize that your life is being governed by that unconscious desire. Um, but... It's just a good question for someone who grows up in a in a context like you did and and developed into a three, mm -hmm. you know? What's interesting that I've always wondered is that I was very, I didn't want attention as a, as a young kid. Um, I think I wanted quiet affirmation from the people that I loved. And then as I got older and further into kind of high school and college, it was like the switch just flipped and all of a sudden it was something that I really desired and something that I would pursue I think unconsciously mostly at that point um, but I was really shy and I didn't want a lot of attention but I wanted affirmation and at some point in my life it grew from affirmation into attention into you know approval and you, I can trace the whole thing back through my you know teens and 20s um, but I always thought that was interesting and I think people probably assume that most threes are very extroverted and they want all the attention. And while I can be very extroverted, I don't think that that was my nature as a kid. So I don't know where that, I mean, I do kind of know where those shifts happen, but it's just interesting to yeah. look back on. Yeah. People will ask me sometimes, do you think this was nurture or nature? And I go, I don't know. Yeah. You tell me. Yeah. I mean it, you know, it's, or what, 
what combination was it 60% nurture 35% nature five you know I, I don't know all I know is that we become these things um, you've mentioned one way that I think it does happen which is we get rewarded for things. So if you're a two on the Enneagram and you're a little kid and you're always helping around the house, you're mommy's little helper and you get lots of love for it, the little kid's brain says, wait a minute. You know, I get a lot of love for being successful or for being helpful or fives being smart, you know, or observant or sevens for being fun you yeah. know i get a lot of strokes for this stuff this is working this yeah. is this yeah, is working right. for me and it's it, yeah. it's ensuring that if i continue to be this person i'm going to feel love esteem safe secure and in control right and you know we drag that stuff into adulthood and unless it gets looked at <laughs> then you know we're operating with a child's you know instruction manual and that's not it's not a really healthy place to live, right? I'm glad but, you highlighted, too, that you're an introvert. I mean, I have a friend who is a seven, and she's very private, yeah. but she is a seven, Yeah, you know? I, someone told me I was the most extroverted introvert they'd ever met, mm -hmm. and I was like, <laughs> that fits. I can, I'll wear yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, That is definitely me. Yeah. Now, the older I get and my five wing gets stronger, much stronger, I definitely spend much more time alone. I go to fewer big parties. I avoid them like the plague, actually. I love having two couples over for dinner. Um, I'm just very happy by myself. Um, and, you know, I think that's just the balancing out of my three and five wing. And I think, you know, it's just taken me a long time, as it does for everybody, to have that balance come, in, come into play. You mentioned something earlier I want to ask you, because I think a lot of people are already hoping, oh, I hope he asks this question because of what she said earlier. How do you let go of love? One day at a time. I mean, and you don't ever let go of it. You know, I think it just part of what I've had to learn and um, it feels, it felt impossible to even consider, but I have had some really incredible um, women who have become mentors who were widowed, not quite as young as me, but in their early thirties. And, um, they just kept saying it will, the way that you love him will change. And even now, and I've been in a new relationship for many months now, and even in working through all of that with him and, and how do we carry this forward together, this part of my story and da da da. I just said, it's, I don't know how to explain it besides what was romantic love for Ben now feels like, incredibly rich familial love like mm -hmm. that he is just part of my family that I will see again you know um but that romantic love isn't there it's just it's a sense of someone that I cherish and and I think that you know that's true of any relationship the way you love people changes and and so I would hope that you never really have to let go of it it just changes form and the the presence that it has in your day-to-day -day life changes too Mm, it's that's maybe that's such a beautiful answer yeah it's amazing it's a miracle wow. that that happens truly i feel like i've been a witness to it it's it's wild it's almost like if i was going to use christian language i might get choked up saying this um i thought it immediately comes to mind that that he becomes a part of the communion of saints truly yes right the cloud of witness that yeah, surrounds yeah, you yes yes and will always be there yeah you know uh if you find somebody else and you he'll always be a part of the cloud of witnesses yeah, 100 uh, 
cheering you on on the race of life. Yeah. Oh, see that? I'm a four. I'm right? Getting, I'm cheering up. I'm puddling. Look at that. Oh, uh, Lord Jesus. Okay. So Bring it back. So three. No, I'm a four. I want to <laughs> Lean into your three. I want to stay there. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, threes have a lot of trouble typically identifying feelings, not knowing the feelings they have. Twos exquisitely attuned to the feelings of others, as you have just witnessed. Fours are exquisitely attuned to their own feelings. But I, you know, I think grief for a three is hard because it's like, I don't even know how to name the 50 feelings because grief isn't one feeling. It's, it's, it's a, it's like a, it's like a ball of feelings. uh, And we, we put it all under the rubric of grief, but it's a lot of stuff. How does a three go through grief um, when they have so much trouble navigating the world of feelings? It was very, difficult because I think like I sort of self-deprecatingly joked with people that I had never like I had felt sad I'm not saying I had never felt sad but I had never allowed myself to feel pain for any extended period of time because I am a fix-it person and I'm a forward-thinking person and you just keep going and I think with something this devastating, you know, my default mode is to push through or stay busy or push down feelings. And in that ball of chaotic grief emotions, it was very difficult and very frustrating to pinpoint what I was feeling and why I was feeling it, much less learn how to like sit in it and digest it. Um, So I think, I mean, for me, the only thing that I know to suggest or advise that was practical is that I started to learn when I was not dealing with the pain or the, you know, despair or the anger or whatever was happening that I couldn't really identify, you know, your body starts to kind of tell you. And I learned what my triggers were. And when that would happen, I would, I would intentionally do things that would make me cry. Like, I know that sounds crazy, but it's just, I would go through his old things. I would watch our wedding video. I would do things that would force me into a place where I was so sad that I couldn't hold the emotions down because my default is to just keep going, you know? And so, for example, it's a very poignant moment that I share in the book. Um, You know, our first anniversary was three weeks after he died. And I knew that was going to be the worst day besides the day that he actually passed for me that I had ever experienced and in three fashion had a plan and I knew that I was going to celebrate I was going to do a dinner with his mom my mom my sisters and some close girlfriends and we had gone to Africa on our honeymoon and went through the wine regions because I was a psalm and all that so I had those wines and we were going to pair them with the meal I mean it was the whole thing because I was like I'm gonna have a little bit of joy this is something he would love to do with me um but I woke up that morning and I was I just knew that if I didn't pull away and take time to feel the full impact of how devastating that day was without him that I couldn't do that dinner. I couldn't do anything else. And so I went down in our basement and watched our whole wedding video start to finish by myself and bawled. I mean, the hardest I have ever cried. Um, And something about being forced to do that so early on, I mean, three weeks in, in such a, such a 
to to the, to such a magnitude as that, like your anniversary, it it taught me very quickly that the way that I was going to really heal and the way that I was going to grieve honestly was forcing myself to have those rock bottom moments and. I'm very good at resisting them. So I learned how to kind of trigger myself to purge those feelings and then move forward. Mm -hmm. Okay. Enneagram threes, actually any Enneagram type. Are you yeah, listening right real. now? Yeah. Like this is, um, this conscious intentionality. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's in a similar fashion. Um, when I've gone through hard times, I can remember one very hard time and I, I was having a difficulty kind of processing something very painful. And I listened to Vince Gill's Go Look High Up on That Mountain. Yes, that, yes, exactly. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times that I played that. Yeah, right? Yeah. That song uh -huh. is like... I, I think mean, one it of the, will, yeah. I think it's one of the, I think it's in the top 10 country songs ever written, yeah. but it is... A song which, if it does not trigger genuine heartfelt mm. emotion, so songs, mm -hmm. um, art, yep. um, uh, walks uh, in nature, whatever it is, where we're like, and and this speaks to to the orientation to time. Three's orientation to time is the future. You want to spend as much time in the future as you possibly can. Doesn't mean that you don't live permanent, you know, there all the time. You but right. but that's your preference. What you did is say. Okay, I'm going to live right now. I'm going to get myself out of the future. I'm intentionally going to get myself into the present, colored by the past. I'm going to go two places I don't <laughs> typically want to go, and that's where the healing one was, mm -hmm. wasn't it? It was, yeah. And I think that's something that I'm grateful for, even in the, the season I'm in now, is like when you have to learn to be present in the painful seasons, it felt to me like it built a little more muscle for me to be present in joyful ones too. And like, that's a, that's a great benefit. That's, that's totally a part of the treasure, right? It's like you can, if you don't have the capacity to grieve, if you don't have the capacity to experience loss, you're limited in your capacity to experience joy. Totally. Yeah. Oh yes. It's, it's the craziest thing. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember um, on old recording desks and maybe people have seen these in videos on TV and stuff, but they <clears throat> old recording desks used to have faders. And now Pro Tools has kind of eliminated those big, long desks with all the different faders. And each fader was an instrument, right? And um, you could pull down the lead vocal or the background vocals or whatever, um, and it would be isolated. But if you think of that board as emotions, you can't pull one down without the others joining. So... You know, to keep that in mind, you know, just be careful. Like if you tamp down an emotion, guess what? All the others come with it. It's like an automated board, right? They all come down together. Your husband was a seven. You have a new beau. Yes. What's his name? Connor. That's right. Connor, yeah. right? Irish. You got to think for Irish. Yeah, Irish people, yeah, sevens. Yeah, yeah. What is it about sevens and you? What's going I on, Maddie? I wish I knew. You're a therapist. You tell me what my, my compulsion to sevens is. Um, no, I, I laughingly told you before, I don't screen, uh, men and ask, are you an Enneagram seven? If not, goodbye. But I don't know why that, that, that happens. I think that there is, um, as you said, a draw to people who have the same or a similar energy level and 
our dreamers and our forward thinking, you know, sevens are future oriented too. And I think that there is a levity to them that is helpful to a three who can get really caught up in how people see them and, you know, their value being all about what they do. And sevens do a lot, but from what I can tell, it does not really inform how they see themselves or feel about themselves quite as much. And so I think that has to be part of the draw, but I do think they're just infectious people. And like I said, I, I don't do anything at 50% and at sevens don't really do anything at 50% either. It's just, it is a lot of energy and it's a lot of passion. And I, I think I told you too, you know, when I started learning about the Enneagram, it was a really, it was a really sweet tool to look back on Ben and I's marriage um, because it shone light on some of the recurring issues that we had. And not that there was any regret around those because all relationships have issues, but it, it, it shone a little light on, oh, this makes sense. This is why this happened. And now, you know, in the many months that I've been with Connor, I've carried some of those things in because I can, you know, take those glasses off our marriage and sort of see my tendencies um, and know a little bit more about how, you know, the seven hears what I'm saying. Hmm. Awesome. By the way, everybody, I just want to remind you, I am talking to Maddie Jackson Selectman and uh, talking about her new book, Lemons on Friday, Trusting God Through My Greatest Heartbreak. You are an incredibly advanced three. Um, Dopamine hits. Right now, this is everything I imagined it would be. Right, and right now I can actually hear the dopamine hit. Did you hear that click? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh! So I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I totally get it, and I, I'm so thrilled that we had the opportunity to speak. Before we close up, what, what is it you hope that when people read Lemons on Friday, what? When they hit the last page and they, then they close the book, what's the first feeling and thought that you want them to mm. have? I hope they feel relieved um, because what I hope my story conveys is that nothing is too broken to be redeemed. And obviously, I know you know I mean that in the spiritual sense, but I mean it in a, in a quite literal and experiential sense, too regardless of what your faith is or isn't, I really believe that nothing is too broken to be, not fixed, but redeemed and restored. And I hope people see that in my story. Well, I, I had an editor once when I was writing a memoir, which is not dissimilar to what this is. And um, he said to me in the process of writing, he said, listen, Ian, everybody, every reader is going to come to this book and they are going to have one question on their mind. It's an unconscious question. And the question they're going to ask themselves at the beginning of the book is, how did he or she get through it? How did they make sense of it? Because I'm trying to make sense of similar things in my own life. I want to know how Maddie made sense of it because I want to take some piece of what she did and integrate it into my own experience so I can do the same. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so I think that's a very beautiful desire. Right. It's this. I hope everybody realizes that nothing's too broken. Nothing's too broken. 
And uh, what a what a great aspiration. Okay, everybody, listen up now. I want you to go get Lemons on Friday, Trusting God Through My Greatest Heart Book by my new friend, Maddie Jackson Selectman. Man, thank you for being on Dude, Typology. Thank you. I it told you, it was, it was a dream. It's been so much fun, and I'm feeling on top of the world now. <laughs> and you've got a meeting in six minutes. Yes, I do, and I'm not going to waste a second. It's six minutes to one, and Maddie's got to go. <laughs> That's Man, awesome. what a great time. Blessings and peace to you on everything you're doing. And I hope the book crushes it. Uh, you and me both, brother. Thank yeah, you for having me. You bet. Hey, Typology friends, I want you to remember these words. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. May you have rest. We'll see you next time.